There we go. Are we on? Good, good, good. Okay. Put in my pocket. Still on? All right. You guys got me. Okay. Um, yeah, what, what a beautiful way to start this Sunday. Breaking bread with our brothers and sisters in the faith. And, and as we think about taking communion... And I love how we began that, right? We, we went to the meet and greet, and what Josh asked us to do was ask our neighbors, how can we begin to pray for them, right? And then Matt came up, and he told us about communion. He told us, like, like yo, think about the things that are on your mind. <laughs> what were the things that were on your mind this weekend or weren't on your mind this weekend that you, that, that you need to give to God? And same thing with your eyes, and same thing with your ears, same thing with your mouth, same thing with your legs, your body. Where were you? Or where were you not? Y'all, aren't we so glad that we have a God that we can come to with confession? I am so grateful that we have a God that we can come to with confession. He invites us into this place. He invites us into his presence. And he allows us to say the things that are burdening our hearts. But not only that they're burdening our hearts, but things that are suppressing us away from experiencing his goodness, which is ultimately our sin. And he says, y'all. Come to me, and I will take that. I don't know if this will free anybody in here today, but confession and, and, and owning your sin and, and confessing your sin to God and among brothers and sisters is not something that the Bible prescribes for us to shame us, but it's something prescribed to us to free us. It's a beautiful reality. It's, it's the complete opposite. We think that owning our shortcomings, owning the bad things that we do, is going to heap shame and guilt on us. But the reverse is true when it comes to what it means to do that in light of Christ. What he does is he receives that on himself, and he bestows on you righteousness. This happens at conversion, but then it also happens every time you go to his feet and say, Lord, forgive me. So I love, I love how we began with that. And uh, before I jump into what we're going to do right now, I'm going to pray. And I'm going to pray uh, that this becomes not something that we do sometimes when we come here on Sundays. This mindset of confession, this mindset of realizing that, man, the blood covers all. Like we have, we have the body of Christ. We can take that and we can remember him. And we have the blood of Christ that covers and wipes away all sin. I pray that this doesn't become something that we only think about and do when we come to church on Sunday. But this becomes a habit in our lives. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we love you. We're thankful for who you are. We're thankful for your, uh, your life, your death, and your resurrection, and ultimately your blood. Lord Jesus, thank you for your blood that covers a multitude of sins. Lord, I pray that you work it in us, that we don't have to hide. We can run to you, and we can run with you with full force. We thank you, Jesus. We love you. I pray this in your name. Amen. Okay. So my name is Jared Cole. Um, I'm one of the pastors over at Cornerstone Church. I work with the Salt Company out there. And thank you to your pastors, Matt, and thank you to Josh and your elders for uh, inviting me to come back here again. I love coming here to Stonebridge Church. Uh, if this is your first time seeing me, this is not my first time here. So if you don't know me, please find me after church. Introduce yourself. I would love to meet you. Um, so I've got to say something. Actually, let me say this first. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10, okay? If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 10. But I got to say something. Uh, me and your pastor, Matt, like we have something in common. A lot of y'all who've seen me here before, uh, you know this, but we are both Chiefs fans. <laughs> 
And obviously today, Matt, Matt did it right. He's actually wearing black today. It's a, it's a funeral, okay? <laughs> today is Super Bowl Sunday, and our Chiefs were supposed to be in the Super Bowl. And, and y'all know, like I know, that we didn't quite make it to the Super Bowl. Uh, and this might be the loudest I get all sermon, right? Because I'm really upset about this, right? Like, yo, it should have been the Chiefs that made it to the Super Bowl. But it's not. It's going to be the Bengals and the Rams. And so now I got I to gotta cheer for the Bengals as consolation. Um, I told Matt, I'm not going to say this on stage. Actually, I am. Yeah, I told Matt it's because uh, I'm a Hawkeye fan, right? And so Mike Daniels uh, plays for the Bengals. I hear you back there, baby. Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. And so a lot of my dreams are coming true today. Well, actually, just this, this one dream. I've always wanted to, like, preach a Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> Like, I don't know why. Like, like, back when I was growing up, it was super common for, you know, my, my pastor to, to go up, do his teaching, and to be on a Sunday in any football game, not just Super Bowl, but he would always say, I'm going to get y'all out of here, you know, before the game comes on. I know your game's coming up. I'm going to get you out of here, right? And so, like, I, like, I like feel compelled to kind of own that a little bit, right? Like, <laughs> I'm going to get y'all out of here before the game comes on, okay? Matt's like, Matt always talks to me about going long, right? But it, I got plenty of time. The game don't start till 5.30, so y'all good. <laughs> So we're going to be in Luke chapter 10, um, the end of Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Uh, This is a familiar story. It's a popular story. But I hope to shed some new light on this for us today. I'm going to begin reading the text. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. And so most of us have probably read this text before, and we've, and we've read it over, and we know what it says, right? And, and we can hear, like, these, these basic biblical principles as we read this book, right? Let me set the scene for us. You have this woman named Mary who's sitting at the feet of Jesus while Martha seemingly is running around the house, like, with her head chopped off, trying to figure out, man, like, what's going on? I got to do this. I got to do that. Here's the thing. She's huffing and puffing, preparing for the guest and becoming bothered. Why? Because Mary won't help. And if we're honest, we tend to think about Martha. And when we think about Martha, we can turn our nose up at Martha and we can get this stank lip face on our face about Martha. And we can just think, man, if I was there, I can't believe Martha would be doing this. And they have Jesus the most prized guest of honor in their house, and this is Martha's response. I can't believe Martha would do something like this, right? If I were in the house, if we were in the house, we wouldn't be doing this. We would be showing and giving all honor to God. We'd be sitting at the feet of Jesus like Mary, right? But before we jump to that conclusion, we have to remember that this wasn't just anybody coming to the house, right? This was our Lord and Savior. It was the Messiah, Jesus Christ, 
was coming to this house to dine. There's some people in here, I'm not going to call you out, I'm amongst (laughs) the ilk, that get worked up about hosting for less. (laughs) We get worked up about hosting for less, right? You get frantic when it's just the neighbors coming over or a friend who you've known, they're coming from out of town, right? Or guess what, even maybe maybe it's the the (laughs) in-laws, right? They're coming over. When it's somebody important who's coming over, we'll pull out all the stops. We'll get the mister clean and we'll scrub everything. We'll get the mop out. We'll mop the floor. We'll do the windows. We'll look under stuff we haven't looked under in years and see, like, is there dust under there? We got we to get that up. We're laboring over the food. We're laboring over the service. Always when somebody important comes over. A few months ago, uh, my dad came out to visit. He's from Philadelphia. In the whole week leading up to him coming over, uh, my wife can attest to this. I was just like, do we have everything in order? (laughs) Do we have the meal set out for the week that we're going to have, at least for dinner? Do we have the activities that we're going to do? Are we going to get down to the apple orchard? Are we going to do these things with the kids? What about the bedroom? (laughs) Is it fixed up? Is the blankets on right? Do we have enough pillows? Are the pillowcases washed? (laughs) All these different things, preparing for my dad to come to the house. When you know that somebody of importance is coming over, right, it just has this different effect on you. Everybody's on edge to some extent. But for Martha, it wasn't just anybody. It wasn't just her dad. It was Jesus. And we tend to give Martha a bad rap. And honestly, most of us likely wouldn't have been like Mary in the situation. We would actually rather have been like Martha. But of course, many of us want to be like Mary, right? The sister who chose the right thing. Jesus commends her and says, yo, Mary had chose the good portion. And so we read the text and we want to say, I want to be like Mary. But I think sometimes we can be tempted to look at Mary as the more desirable sister in the story and make some, 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 some weird assumptions. I want to address the women in the room really quick. Because of Jesus' response to Martha and how easy it is to identify with her, it can be easy to throw yourself into a comparison spiral. You could think, you know, I want to be like Mary, but I feel like a Martha. Or, or wait, should I, be a, should I be a Martha? No, 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 no. I, I for sure should be a Mary, right? The, the pull between being the calm and devoted Mary and the get it done Martha might bring some tension to you, and it might bring some tension to all of us. But you may be thinking as a mom, right, is, is my distraction with the messes and the meals and the money overruling my capacity to rightfully worship Jesus or the laundry. (laughs) Don't get me started on the laundry. (laughs) Just the thought of laundry sometimes can just, boom, angst. (laughs) That thing piles up. If you got kids, that might pile up like by the second. Or maybe you're not a mom or a wife, but you long to be. And what takes up your mind and heart space is the preparation for the right spouse. Am I beautiful enough? Am I helpful enough? Am I smart enough? Am I independent enough? Am I just the right combination of sporty and girly? 
and you're busy and distracted, making sure you're presentable and you're wondering, man, is all of this taking away from my capacity to rightfully worship Jesus? And I would say no. We have to remember in this story that Jesus is not only near to Mary, but he's also near to Martha. And they both approached Jesus just in different ways, right? You got to remember, Jesus came to the house. It was Martha who was the hospitable one. She opened the door. She allowed him in. Jesus was also close to Martha. And I would argue that Martha's authentic and honest approach to Jesus in this story and in other stories, remember back to Lazarus when she approaches Jesus, almost accusatory and says, Jesus, if you were here, my brother wouldn't have died. This wouldn't have happened. This was, this was Martha's M.O. This was how she responded to Jesus, this authentic and this honest approach. And I believe this authentic and honest approach of Martha gives way to a truth that Mary simply just does not give us. You see, Martha's tone has elements of lament to it. It has element of lament to it. Think about the Psalms. You can hear David's voice just crying out in the wilderness, crying out, being chased by Saul. And you can hear him just longing for God like, Lord, how long will you forsake me? How long will your face be turned away from me? It was with this type of honesty that Martha felt like she could actually approach Jesus. Now, this is good news. Martha demonstrates that for us. It was the same kind of way that the disciples, you guys remember the story, when they were crossing the river. And the storm came and swirled up the waves and the wind came and the boat was about to get tipped. It was rocking. They were about to go under. And Jesus was doing what? He was taking a nap. He was sleeping. And what did the disciples say? Jesus, Jesus, wake up. Don't you care that we are about to die? And Jesus' answer to the disciples is the same answer that he gives kind of Martha here. And so if you're wondering if you can do this too, the answer is yes. And if you want to know what you'll hear him say, he will simply calm you and re-incorrect you and redirect you and say your name, Martha, Martha. He'll calm you with gentleness. You see, it's almost impossible to read the story and not try to find yourself in one of the sisters. Surely we've all been a Mary or a Martha at some point in our lives. <clears throat> But if we read this passage and only try to come to a conclusion if we're more contemplative and devotional like Mary or more busy and hospitable like Martha, then we've missed the point completely because I don't think this story is about that. Or if we come away with a message on priorities or how to simply make more time to sit at the feet of Jesus, I think we've missed the point because, again, I don't think the story is really about that, right? The point of this story is not wrapped up in the personalities and characteristics or the comparison of these two sisters in the scripture, Mary and Martha. No, but the point is wrapped up in the why Mary's action was chosen. It's not just the what, which will give us the big idea for our text, and it's this. The big idea is that we don't need to be a Mary or Martha 
but we do need to choose the good portion. And so you see that spoke about in the last verse of this, of this text in verse 42. So what I hope to do today, I hope to do a few things. I want to identify what the good portion is. And I want to talk about how the good portion doesn't just begin with the what. It doesn't begin with the what of what Mary is doing, but it begins with the why of what Mary is doing. We'll get into that. And I also want to show us what the good portion was for Mary, and then thirdly, what the good portion is for us. Look at verse 38. Now as they went on the way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary, and she sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Now we have to know a couple things about this, about this beginning of the story here, right? Mary and Martha, we don't know too much about Mary and Martha, but they for sure show up about three times in Scripture. We know that they're sisters. We know that they had a brother named Lazarus. We can assume that Martha was the oldest sister by the way she was responding in this text right here by assuming to be the hostess. But we also know that they come from some kind of means, right? Remember, it says, now as they went on their way, they, Jesus entered into a village. It was they. Jesus wasn't out here by himself, but he was accompanied by many of his disciples, and so back then, houses weren't normally very big for the common folk. And if you were to come and you were to, 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 to lounge and recline at a table, if you were to come and you were going to be traveling with an entourage, for y'all all to fit into a house, that house had to have been pretty big. And so we can assume that Mary and Martha had some kind of money. We don't know how they got it. We don't know anything about their parents. But we do know that they have it. There's a story of Mary and, and John. It names her in John 12, and she's the woman with the alabaster jar of perfume that goes and anoints Jesus' feet. For her to have that perfume, she would have had to have lots of resources to purchase this said thing. We know this about them. See, Mary and Martha would have been hosting Jesus. There would have been a large crowd there with them. And you can imagine Martha's anxiety as the crowd is filling in. The crowd is filling in, and she sees her sister Mary, and she's not helping with much of anything. You can, you can imagine Martha being consumed about the dishes. You can imagine her being consumed about getting things right, right, cleaning up after everybody, wondering how things are going to stay in order. And she's looking over at her sister Mary, and she only sees her sitting at the feet of Jesus. Verse 41 says, but the Lord, no, verse 40, excuse me. It says this, but Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. See, the thing about Martha and Mary, it wasn't that Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus and Martha was just serving, but there was an intent behind it. Serving isn't wrong alone. But when serving causes you to get anxious and angst builds up, then serving begins to be something that it shouldn't be, right? It says Martha was distracted with the serving. And when she went up to him, she accused him, like, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? You see, there's something about, Mar about Mary. There's something that she knows that Martha hasn't quite 
figured out yet, right? Verse 41 tells us, but the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but only one thing is necessary, and this is the thing that Mary has chosen, the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. We see that when Martha approaches Jesus, Jesus doesn't shun her and turn her away, but he enters into what she's feeling, her pain, her angst. He looks at her, he, he sees her in her eyes, and he calls her by name and says, Martha, Martha, don't be anxious and don't be troubled. And then he looks at Mary. Mary has chosen the good portion, and it will not be taken away from her. Have you noticed that? Mary literally has said nothing <laughs> this entire time. She hasn't done a thing. She came into the house, went down, sat at the feet of Jesus, and she hasn't done a thing since. Martha is not talking to her. The disciples aren't talking to her. Jesus is not talking to her. She goes and she sits down and she does nothing else. I love what verse 42 says about the good portion. The New Living Translation says that, it doesn't say that but one thing is necessary. It says that there is only one thing worth being concerned about. And it doesn't say that she chose the good portion, but it says that Mary has discovered it. I love that translation. Because it lends to something else. It lends to something more than proximity. I think it lends to something more than just simply having this proximate and close uh, uh, relationship with God. You see, the good portion for Mary was choosing to be caught up in the affections and to be near to Jesus. That is the what. But we also have to answer the why. And I believe the why is this, because he will not always be present with Mary. The good portion is choosing to be caught up in the affections of and to be near to Jesus because he will not always be present. Mary knew that Jesus was Lord, and she also knew that he had to die. Did you know that the most difficult thing for the disciples to understand and grasp was the death of Jesus? They didn't want to believe it. Jesus called them to be his disciples, and he called them by name, and they had no issue literally dropping everything and following Jesus. Most had no issue saying that Jesus was the Messiah. But when it came to Jesus talking about what his ministry consisted of and that he had to go and be turned over to the Roman authorities and he had to be flogged and he had to be hung up on a cross and he had to die and be buried in the grave, the disciples wanted no parts of it. But Mary knew. Matthew 16, verse 21 through 23, tells us this story about uh, Peter. Right from that time, it says, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, 
This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, what? Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And again, in verse in chapter 17, he says it again. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. The ESV says some translation says that they were filled with grief. Mark 9 says they did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask him. Luke 9 says, but they did not understand the saying and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. I think Mary had an insight into something. Her posture at the feet of Jesus, I think, speaks to a a greater and larger reality. It's not just the proximity. And for Martha, the thing that's, that's, that's coming against Martha is not just the service. Listen, if the most important thing to take away for us is to be like Mary because she sat at the feet of Jesus, we would be missing it, right? Because if it was only about proximity to and learning from Jesus, then Judas... This wouldn't have happened, right? Judas, who was a disciple of Jesus, who had close proximity to Jesus, but then ultimately was the one who betrayed him. Or Peter, we just read it, right? Super proximate to Jesus, a disciple of Jesus who claimed Jesus as the Messiah. And as he was doing so in the same breath, denied that he was supposed to be doing what he had to do. The relationship doesn't always build uh, knowledge. And then Thomas, who was also a disciple of Jesus, who gave in to doubt and who didn't believe and who couldn't believe. And he said so until he saw the holes in Jesus' hands and he touched the wound in Jesus' side. Y'all, if anybody should have got it, it was these guys. (laughs) The disciples were told this directly And Martha may have heard from around the way. Either way, they knew it, right? But they had trouble believing it. But there was something about Mary, and I think there's a a text that kind of gives us some insight into this. Luke 7 has this story about a sinful woman, and there's a, a, this, this story is replicated in John 12 and Mark 14 and Matthew 26, and the, and the name in Luke 7 is an unnamed woman, but because of John 12, we could argue that this woman may be Mary of Bethany. Now, I'm going to read this story to you, and I, got, and I want you guys to hear this, right? It says this in verse 36 of Luke 7, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, talking about Jesus. And when he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, bought an alabaster jar of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping and crying, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who was touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him said, Simon, 
I have something to say to you. And he answers this and he says, say it, teacher. <laughs> As if you ain't going to tell me something new. When Jesus says this, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And they could not pay. And so we canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered into your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who was forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. If we are going to say, that this woman, Luke 7, we are in Luke 10 right now, but Luke 7, this happens before this account. If this is Mary and she comes into this house, she's coming in already with this knowledge and understanding of who this man is that is in this house. And she walks in and you can see the scene, tears flowing down her face, hair, messy bun, wild. And she walks in and she has this jar, probably the most expensive thing that she's got. And she's coming in and she's coming to Jesus and she lands at her feet, at his feet. Surprise, surprise. This is what Mary does. And when, he goes, when she goes to his feet, tears fall on his feet. And she uses her hair to wipe Jesus' feet and then uses the perfume to anoint his feet. Back in first century Judea, you did not use perfume to anoint the feet of the living. I think this is the key to Mary's why, to why she chose the good portion. She had the knowledge, she had the insight of which the disciples did not want to address, of which the disciples did not want to accept. The thing that Jesus had to do was not only come and be the Messiah, but he also had to go to the cross and die, not just to reign, but also to give himself as a living sacrifice so that he could raise. The disciples wanted to hear none of it. Mary knew it on sight. <laughs> and she knew Jesus. You can forgive sins, sins of which I have many. She goes into the house and she anoints Jesus' feet. This anointing of Jesus' feet, many read this thing as like a suggestive thing, but this wasn't suggestive at all. This was her proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord, one that must live and reign, but also one that has to die. You see, Mary chose the good portion in Luke 10, the only thing that mattered by being at the feet of Jesus when he came to visit because she knew that she was radically forgiven and her Savior was going to die. And it was the hardest thing to ever imagine. She chose the good portion. Proximity to him was the only thing that mattered. 
Not because she was trying to employ some holier-than-thou tactic. Martha was all up in arms. She's sitting at the feet, but she must not have known. Mary had been forgiven. And the text tells us when you have been forgiven much, you love much. And when you've been forgiven much, there's nothing else you want to do than to go sit at the feet of Jesus. On this side of the cross, we already know that Jesus came and lived and he died and he rose on our behalf. So a lot of our main point, right, we don't, we don't need to be a Mary or Martha, but we do need to know what our good portion is. And so the question I have for us is, what is the good portion for us today? And Matt, my timer in the back is not on, so I have like no idea where we are. <laughs> um, so 5.30, I'll get us out of here by 5.30. For sure. Okay. What is the good portion for us today? You see, Mary was ready and knew that Jesus was leaving, and her life reflected that. You know that Jesus is coming back. Are you ready, and is your life reflecting that? And no, I'm not going to turn this sermon into a fire and brimstone sermon with just a little bit of time left. But I do want to do something. What I want to do is I want to use this very existential truth about Mary and juxtapose it with this very real and existential truth about us. Right. Mary was who she was and did what she did because she was convinced not only that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was that she was forgiven, but that he surely had to follow in the Messiah's steps and die. And so the application is, are you who you are and do what you do because you are convinced not only that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and that you are forgiven and that he had to die, but that he surely has to follow in the Messiah's footsteps and return? And to answer this, I want you to be thinking about three things. Number one, is my life purpose aligned with Jesus's purpose? Is my life purpose in line with Jesus' purpose? Further back in Luke, in Luke 4, we kind of get Jesus' life manifesto. It's actually a quote that he has from the book of Isaiah. It's in Luke 4, verses 18 through 19, and he says this. He walks up in the, in the synagogue, and he unrolls the scroll, and he reads this text, and it says this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. If you guys remember, John the Baptist, who preceded Jesus, he had gotten arrested and he wanted to send some of his disciples to go to Jesus. And the question that John the Baptist had on his lips was this, is Jesus the one to come or should we be expecting someone else. And they went to Jesus and asked Jesus this question, and Jesus sent his disciples back to him, and he told him, tell them, the blind see, <laughs> the lame walk, the oppressed are free, <laughs> the captives are free. This is what Jesus proclaimed. And so what does it mean for you to join Jesus in Luke 4? I have three categories for us. Compassion, Mercy and justice. Compassion, 
Who is someone that you can serve? Think about this. Who is someone that is close to you in proximity to you who you can serve? In mercy, who is someone close to you in proximity, in proximity to you that you need to forgive? In justice, where can you help bring restoration, reconciliation, and wholeness, specifically among the marginalized, the poor, and the vulnerable? The second thing is this, am I looking forward to Jesus' return? Billy Graham has this quote, the second coming of Christ will be so revolutionary that it will change every aspect of life on this planet. Christ will reign in righteousness. Disease will be arrested. Death will be modified. War will be abolished. Nature will be changed. And man will live as it was originally intended he should live. The problem is not everybody actually <laughs> desires that. And we may not know. We may not know that we don't desire it because we may not know exactly what Jesus is. Point number one, does our life purpose align with Jesus' purpose? Jesus' purpose will be made manifest in heaven. And if we are uncomfortable with what Jesus' purpose is, we may not look forward to heaven. And so Billy Graham is saying, yo, it will be so revolutionary. It will look like nothing on earth. The most charitable acts on earth, the most reconciled people on earth will look nothing compared to what it is in heaven. And we can see it all throughout the epistles in the New Testament that this is what Paul is trying to do, to, to orchestrate a little outposts of heaven. And we can see the turmoil <laughs> Therein, we can see the difficulty therein. We can see the hardship and difficulty it means to do relationship with one another, to actually live as if Jesus' life purpose is our life purpose. It is hard. Are we looking forward to it? And thirdly, am I actively praying for Jesus' return? What's the best way to pray for this second coming? Pray for it to come how God wants it to come. Secondly, pray that you live your days content with his provision. Give us this day our daily bread. And thirdly, pray for your heart to be prepared. Pray for your heart to be prepared. Pray for a transformed heart. A heart that desires the things that you don't desire now a heart that is not attached to the things of this earth, the heart that is not attached to the things that you can acquire and that you can see and that you can use and you can manipulate and use for your own personal gain. But no, prepare, pray to prepare your heart to be prepared for the things of God. Forgiveness and reconciliation. Now, as I conclude, uh, the band can come up. See, we can read the text in Luke and come to the conclusion that God is anti-doing. Or right, we look at Martha, and he says to Martha, you're anxious. You got to chill. But the reality is this, that God is not anti-doing. In fact, in the book of James, a book penned by Jesus' very own brother, he will say this very thing, that faith without works is dead. And in saying this, I don't think he's trying to heap shame on us. And he's not trying to say, yo, what are you doing for the faith? He's not trying to say all that. 
But I think he's simply trying to get us to understand that proper faith moves you. It does something to you. It transforms you in a way in which you can't stay still. (laughs) The proximity to Jesus is fuel. If you are in Christ, you are in Christ. There's nothing that you can do about that. But believe. And in your belief, James would say, yo, we move. Yes, to want to know Jesus more, but also to radically and sacrificially love your neighbor. He isn't anti-doing. He is anti-doing for doing's sake, right? Because if you're not rooted in him, the doing will become your identity. The problem with Martha and all her busyness and stress wasn't that she prioritized serving too much. It was that she found her identity in it. The gift of serving wasn't something that she had. Serving was something that had her. What if we actually lived like we believed that Jesus was coming back? It would have a dramatic impact, wouldn't it? But let's not think too big, right? Let's think small. Let's, let's come down. What if we just did it here in our own backyards? What if you just thought about the people in your family, the people in your communities, the people in your schools, the people in your churches, right? You extended love and forgiveness and worked on behalf of restoration for them. Christian, like Mary, you have been forgiven much. And so the call is to love much. Jesus is coming back, and in the meantime, we should be loosening our grip on the worry and anxieties of this world and choosing the good portion, aligning our purpose with Jesus' purpose and praying that his will be done. Let me pray for us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power the glory forever. Amen.